is it, is it okay for us to to use this story? Yeah. Hello, Edie Ekmo. This is Zach Shiner, and that's right. Today we have a story. So if you're interested in didactic podcast, I'm sorry, this is not the one, but this is a raw and uh, real and grueling story that you're about to hear. But before we get to it, I want to get to a couple announcements. We've got R4, Reanimate 4 in September is sold out. Stephen Bernard from Australia is coming out, the author of the big hypothermia trial and now actively involved with ECPR, the cheer trial you all know. And in March for R5, Dimitri Yiannopoulos, the cardiologist from Minnesota that you heard on last month's podcast, having amazing initiation times, six minutes to get people on the pump, survivor of greater than 40% for his patients, simply amazing. He will be at R4, or I'm sorry, R5. Get on the waiting list for R4 so that you can get first dibs for R5. And so with that, let's get this party started. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. 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 This is ED ECMO. Uh, And then the day before Thanksgiving. And that is Jake an ER doc from Northern California, whose son unfortunately has leukemia. And he is telling the story about one November when his son, Nate, had a cardiac arrest. Uh, I was supposed to work a swing shift and I was out running errands and I came home and realized I had forgotten to do one of my errands. So sat in my car for maybe 15 seconds and contemplated whether or not I should turn around and go do that errand or not and decided that I wouldn't came into the house and I heard Nate my son breathing and breathing very irregularly Um, so I went up the stairs and found him kind of half on the stairs and half on the landing and he was unconscious and knew that This had just happened because the dog was eating. Apparently, he had grabbed a cookie before he went upstairs, and the the dog was eating his cookie. He had had several episodes of syncope during all of this, you know, when his counts got low, when he got dehydrated, etc. So I was thinking that initially that's what had happened. So uh, I kind of pulled him up onto the landing, you know, thinking that maybe because his legs were still down the stairs, maybe he wasn't uh, circulating well enough to, to wake up. Shortly after I did that, he arrested. So I started CPR on him, and quickly he, you know, came back, pulse came back, he started breathing. So I called 911 because it was pretty clear that, you know, something else was going on here. Soon after I got off the phone with 911, he arrested again, uh, started CPR again. And then again, he came back very quickly. And, and this time he actually woke up and he was talking to me. He was some, somewhat confused. Shortly thereafter, EMS got there, so they they had a really short response time. 
And I kind of let them know what was going on. And they packaged them up uh, and started taking them to uh, the hospital. And it's a pretty small, it's in Santa Cruz, so it's a pretty small local hospital. And I, you know, just, I don't know what I grabbed, but um, I think I put the dog outside and grabbed something and um, just followed behind them. When I got there, my ex, who happened to work at the hospital, came out and she was obviously distraught um, and said that they were, you know, doing CPR on him and, and, and intubating him. So I went in, in, in and apparently he had forgot to say this right before he arrested the second time at my house, he had a real brief seizure. So I guess while he was en route, he had another seizure uh, and then arrested again. So I went in and they were coding him and someone was intubating him and uh, gave him epi um, and he responded to that. And I apologize, I'm going to, the exact details of, of when he coded and uh, Etc. I don't remember all of those details. Um, I know he coded over eight times that day. So when we got him back, the while he was in at the hospital, my ex had um, contacted CalStar, which is you know the local wide flight, um, and so they arrived pretty shortly because she knew that you know. This small hospital was, was not the place for him. And uh, I think there was someone that was trying to get a hold of Stanford at that point, because that, that's where he had been getting his uh, treatment up at Lucille Packard. So once we got him back, because we didn't really have a clear idea what was going on, and you know, I didn't know if he had fallen and hit his head, I didn't know if, you know, with his platelets being low, if he had some kind of bleed. Um, and all of his arrests, well, you know, he, he hadn't really arrested that many times. Um, I think it was at three or four uh, by this time. Um, I guess maybe three. But his arrests seemed to be Brady arrests, so he would just Brady down, widen out. Uh, and, and then arrest. So, again, didn't know what, what was going on. So we just kind of, you know, scooped him up and, and took him over to CT, did a head CT on him, um, and now looked clean. But while we were in CT, um, he arrested again. So we came back to the ED. The other doc who was kind of helping manage him while we were in CT, got the echo tech down. And so she slapped the echo on him and his um, RV was just huge and um, basically not moving at all. So looked at that and knew right away that he, he needed to get on ECMO. So I got on the phone and called, called the CV surgeon at my shop, which is over the hill in San Jose, talked to him really briefly, 
and explain what was going on. And he said, you know, if you can get him here, I'll put him on ECMO. But started thinking about putting him in CalSTAR's helicopter, and it, it's a small helicopter, and, you know, the nurses strapped in, they can't really even do compressions. I, I did not like his odds of getting in that ambulance or getting in that helicopter um, and, and nobody really being able to perform good compressions. And then someone mentioned that they had basically just gotten an ECMO machine at Dominican. I think they had used it less than a handful of times just on like post-valve patients or something like that. And they, they had just started the program. Um, so like I said, less than, I think they had like three or four patients on, on their ECMO machine up, up to that point. So my ex called the, um, called the PA who was on CV service down, called him, you know, just initially presented the case and he had never done anything like this before. And he was like, this is, this is not, not a good candidate. And she told him who it was. So he said he'd come down. And in the interim, the other doc who was helping us, he got on the line with this with the CV surgeon. Now there's there was only one CV surgeon who was actually credentialed to do ECMO in that hospital, and he was um, he was out of town. So the one surgeon who was on call, the other doc was talking to him. Uh, and he pretty much said the same thing, you know, cancer kid, arrest uh, multiple times and uh, said, you know, definitely not a candidate. So then I pretty much grabbed the phone out of his hands and, you know, told him that it was my son. So he kind of stopped and there was a little bit of a pause and he said, OK, well, I'm on my way. Um, and I asked him how, how long he, how far out he was. He said 20 minutes. By this time he had arrested a couple times again and we had accessed his port. Um, and so he was on an epi drip. Um, and we were flying by the seat of our pants, obviously, um, he was not really responding to one milligram of epi when he arrested. So we would just give him two back to back through his, um, through his access port. Uh, and he was responding to that. So we, uh, I said, all right, let's go to the OR. So we package him up, wheeled him into the OR. And while we were right there in the middle of the OR, he arrested again, got him back. Um, the OR nurse was, or the charge nurse was screaming because she didn't have any anesthesiologist or surgeon. And we just kind of wheeled right by her and went into her room. So it was me and the PA, the CVPA, and a couple of OR nurses and a couple of ED nurses and the RT. Uh, and so I kind of acted as the anesthesiologist uh, and the PA acted as a surgeon. And he arrested again and he was taking longer and longer to get come back. 
And so obviously we were, um, we had limited time. PA had never done a cut down before, um, couldn't get peripheral access. So he actually did a cut down and they had called the perfusionist. Um, so I guess it took probably about 25 minutes or so, but he was able to cut down and, and get him on the circuit. Um, and um, while we were doing that, uh, the, the guy, the other, uh, the doc who was, you know, in the ED actually on working that day, had gotten, finally gotten a hold of Stanford. They initially told him that they had no beds, but finally found a bed. Uh, and then the helicopter they have for Lucille Packard is not small enough, or it's not big enough to, to fly with a, an ECMO team. And I don't know if they've ever flown with a PD ECMO patient before. So, um, but fortunately he was, he's sort of the point person for EMS in that hospital. So he got on the line with uh, the head of the life flight at, at Stanford. And so they got their big bird and uh, put, put a team together uh, to come pick him up. And so they showed up and he was, uh, you know, on the circuit, obviously. And uh, they had a fellow and a perfusionist and, and the whole um, typical life flight to nurse team uh, and took him to took him to Stanford flew him over there the next day they they had they took him down and did a CT angio of his chest uh, and he ended up having bilateral massive PEs so talked to Got IR involved, and they they said they didn't have anything for him. They had no idea, you know. They they didn't feel like they were going to be able to um, do any kind of thrombectomy or clot removal because they were just too big. Um, and it also looked like he had a, he had sort of a small chronic one, so that's probably what his lower edema lower extremity edema was, but. Previously, had never complained of any shortness of breath or anything like that. Talked with the um, PDCV surgeon and talked about doing an open thrombectomy. But he, uh, for obvious reasons, he was wanted to, to see if there was any other option uh, before they opened him up. So, again, there's really no protocol for what to do with people with um, bilateral massive PEs. Um, so put together, the plan was that they were going to do a 48-hour TPA infusion. And um, after the 48 hours, they uh, did another echo, and his RV looked great. It wasn't wasn't wow. back down to normal size, but it was working great um, and had probably came back down to within... 10 or 15 percent of what it what it what, what it would, should have been normally. Yeah, the EF improved dramatically. Um, so he got, like I said, a continuous infusion of the TPA. They they discovered when they took him to CT that his port, um, as you know, when you're when you're on an ECMO circuit, you you don't know where the contrast or anything like that is going to go. 
but they um, they did the um, CT angio with the contrasters port and noticed that it was just like a a shot right into where his clots were. So mm. they just infused the TPA through his port, uh, and it was wow. a yeah, continuous infusion for 48 hours, um, and then repeated the echo, and his heart looked great. So a couple of days later, they took him off the circuit and decannulated him and let him wake up. Um, so that was, again, that all happened the day before Thanksgiving, uh, and I think he spent about a month in the hospital, but was able to go back to school and resume class, walked with, uh, graduated with his class that, um, that June and is doing phenomenally. He, uh, even before he graduated, he started an EMT class program, uh, so that now he's going to college and working as a EMT on a 911 rig and planning to go to medical school. Wow. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure how that story was going to end, to be honest, because <laughs> I mean, Raj didn't give me a lot of details. And after, oh, man, I'm, I'm like a little uh, teary out here. Um, no, yeah, Raj didn't give me very many details. So after you had said the story, I wasn't sure if neurologically he was going to be okay, but he is. Yeah, he's, he's uh... okay. He's yeah. going to go to med school? Yeah. <sighs> so in the OR, what what were you doing? I mean, were you were you beside yourself or were you get, helping him with the cut down? Or, I mean, I, I don't even know how I would react in, at that point. Yeah, I mean, during the whole process, it was... Uh, there was one point while he, when he was still in the ED and... Um, you know, I, I could feel myself sort of becoming, you know, a little, or not a little, but I could feel the emotions creeping up. And I just, I told myself, you know, he's got, he's got one shot. And, uh, you know, you, I, I knew I had to stay just razor sharp or he wasn't going to make it. So um, I just kind of went into cyborg mode but yeah after uh pretty much almost right after he got on the circuit the vascular surgeon showed up and and the anesthesia anesthesiologist showed up and um and then i just lost it at that point but yeah, I was able to hold it together during the during the rest of it. Was your inclination to do more, like to do it yourself, or no? As far as the, the procedures and the and the chest compressions and the epinephrine, I mean the whole the whole nine yards. I mean, what? I, I, well, I I was I was pretty much running the whole thing. Okay. Once I got there, and. Uh, I, I know that, you know, that's the last thing you're supposed to do. But, you know, when you're put in that situation, you just you can't just sit there and watch 
something like that happened because if it didn't turn out well, it was going to be a it was going to be a bad situation if it didn't turn out well either way, if I was involved or not. But, um, you know, you just completely beat yourself up if you, I just, I just felt like I, I was the best, best option to, to manage it. So, and I mean, that's what, that's what I think I would do as well, is that I would just start taking over. And then so when you get to the OR, did you take over as well? No, I because again we had no anesthesiologist, so I was managing his airway um, and and you know running the code part of it because again he rested while he was on the OR table, and and I had not taken this was before I had taken the reanimate class. Oh man, I, okay. I had taken. Um, that sort of little two-hour um, taster class that you guys did at um, Smack in Chicago. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, I had enough familiarity with it, um, but I, I had not been formally trained yet. But it seems to me that that knowledge, your curiosity into resuscitation—I mean, that's what actually saved him. Yeah. Because if you hadn't, if you hadn't known that that existed, that you have not been persistent with what the capabilities of this small little hospital had, I mean that there was that would that's like a that would have never even been on the table. Right. You're a hero. He's a hero. Well, I'm sure that's true too. But <laughs> and is so that hospital that you went to is not your hospital. At Dominican, I work there. I work once a month there, okay. so they know me there, and I have privileges there. Okay. Um, but that's not my main shop. No. Okay. All right, I'm going to interject here with uh, condensing down just some amazing conversation with Jake and I. Basically, we talked about a lot of the usual stuff. Hypothermia, do you put them on? Uh, his son, Nate, got initially cooled to 36 degrees, and then when they went to Stanford, they had all the discussion about coagulopathy and whether this was going to be an issue for him and his platelets, and they did not continue to cool him at that point. As far as sedation, he got a bolus of ketamine given uh, at the ER right after he got started on the pump. And, um, and then we started talking about what happened over at Stanford. So essentially, he the next day after he got to Stanford, they took him for CT angio of the chest, a very involved process. Jake talks about 16 different people having to, to be involved with moving him to the scanner. They consulted IR that day who said, as we often have with PEs on ECMO, not a lot we can offer, right? There's no real thrombectomy we can do. The uh, catheter-directed TPA, they ended up using the port to do that, and so they continued that through day five. The CT surgeons met with them on day three, and uh, again, no surgical uh, in indication at this time, but they continued to follow echoes, and by day five and six, his echo was looking really great, and his EF was coming back, and so by day seven, they actually decannulated him. Uh, neurologically, he woke up on day eight, still not back to baseline, but he ended up getting extubated by day nine. And by that time, they were still having some issues with being neurologically delayed. And within probably a week, he was back to his 
uh, maybe it was more like 10 days, uh, it was pretty clear that he was um, recovering quickly and went back to his baseline. Well, Jake, that is... You you are a hero, man. That, that I mean, I know you're going to minimize it, but I, that, your son is is not with us. If you did not do what you did, he is not here. That, that is, is incredible what you did. Yeah. I feel like I was just doing what any of us would have done, you know, when your back is pushed to a wall. For some people, it's their job to be the thing that stands between whether a person lives or dies. Some extreme examples of this would be military personnel in war zones, police, fire first responders, maybe something really extreme like a hostage negotiator. But medical personnel, like doctors and nurses, sometimes also fall into this category. When a person is properly trained to do a particular thing, especially when the outcome of that thing can make the difference between life and death, ideally, they should be emotionally disconnected from the victim of that situation. But as in Jake's case, sometimes there just isn't a choice. So what determines whether a particular action is heroic? Well, I guess that depends on the significance of what just went down. But if you're ever put into a situation where you have to do your thing on a family member and the outcome, their life, depends on how well you perform, just stepping up, taking that on, that defines a hero, regardless of the outcome. This is the EDECMO Podcast.